Thank you so much for joining us this week as Pastor Scraper brings us today's message. As always, give us a like on Facebook at Southern Hills United Methodist Church. And be sure to visit our website at www.shumcokc.org. We've been learning something together um, over the course of the past year. We've been kind of taking a look in, in different capacities at what the Bible actually says. And that's given us a chance to take a look at what Jesus actually teaches. Did you know that uh, this is going to blow your mind? There's this old statistic, it's a few years old now, that 60% of all clergy, clergy, so that's ministers, 60% of all ministers have not read the Bible in its entirety. Can you believe that? That blew my mind the first time I saw that. Now, I've shared this statistic a few times in the past. The, the, what you're thinking right now is, has Matt read the Yes, I have read the Bible. You don't need to worry about that. I'm in that small minority, I guess, of ministers who read it. Um, but here's the thing. W- what we know is that fewer Christians, fewer followers of Christ have read the scriptures in their entirety than has the clergy, somewhere up to upwards of like 80% of all Christians, have not read the scriptures in its entirety. So you're thinking back right now. You're like, I don't know. Have I read the whole thing? And you're going to give yourself some grace as well you should because we preach that. Numbers is really boring. It's a really boring book of the Bible, right? And so you may be thinking to yourself, well, I've read most of the Bible. I think it's interesting. As we take a look at what Christ actually teaches, which gives us a chance to step into the scriptures, see what Jesus is actually saying about the things that we hold near and dear to our heart, gives us an opportunity to ask a few questions, like, how does what I was taught, you know, we're taught things in so many different ways, specifically within a, like a religious context, in a Christian context, we're taught things in different ways. Maybe you grew up in the church, right? Maybe you grew up in the church and you went to Sunday school and you learned some things on felt boards like I did. I make fun of that from time to time. Maybe you went to, to church on Sunday morning, sort of paid attention most of the time. Don't feel bad about it. My dad was the lead pastor of my church for my whole life. I had so much trouble staying awake during, I love dad. He's a good preacher. He had to ask me once to stop falling asleep in the front row in the middle of the sermons. It's hard to do sometimes. So you probably heard some things in different ways in different places at different times. I bet a lot of what you think about what you believe is right and wrong comes from what you were taught by whomever raised you and the culture that you're a part of. Sometimes that's codified into a religious context. Most often, we form views about what we believe to be okay and not okay. This is morality, by the way. What we believe to be right and wrong based on what we're taught by whomever raised us and whatever culture we were raised in. Those things we hold near and dear. Taking a look at what the Bible actually says. As followers of Christ living in the world, when we take a look at what the teachings of the one that we follow actually said, gives us an opportunity to ask some very important questions. One of them is, how does what I was taught or maybe what I learned? Sometimes what I learn is different from what I was taught. How does that match up 
with two things. How does that match up with what I'm reading about that Christ actually said in the context in which Christ taught it? How does what I thought I knew about things match up with what Christ actually said? And how does what I thought I learned or what I thought I was taught, how does that match up with my lived experience of the Christ that I am coming to know through the Holy Spirit? Good questions to ask. That's given us an opportunity to take a look at some really important things that Christ said and did. Like, Christ is regularly uh, talking to the religious establishment. You know, so every time, you'll, you'll see in the scriptures uh, things like uh, Jesus went and taught and proclaimed uh, repentance that people should change their hearts and their minds. We see the same language used to reference John the Baptist, that John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance that people, which is what repentance means, by the way, to change. People need to change their hearts and minds. You know what you'll read over if you don't look at it? You're going to read right over the fact that in each one of those instances, in every instance where that language is used, the people doing it, i.e. Jesus or John, they're, they're taking that message of changing what you think to the religious elites and the teachers of the law. Not to the people who are not believers, to the people who have professed to believe. Jesus is going. John the Baptist, who prepares the way for Christ, is going to the people who have already professed a faith in God and saying to those people, you need to change what you believe. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is being chastised for healing on the Sabbath. Not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Interestingly, a law given to people by God, who's the one doing the healing on the Sabbath? I don't know. I, I struggle to chastise God for doing what God is. But anyway, they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, you know, you're not supposed to do this. Jesus chastises them in return. It is there that Jesus says, if you, if you understood what I meant, if you understood what I was trying to teach you, which is codified in, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He said, if you had learned it, you'd understood it, you wouldn't be condemning innocent people. One of the things Jesus says over and over again is, your misinterpretation of the law is causing you to condemn innocent people. Stop doing it. Change. Change what you think and change the way that you behave as a result of what you think. So we have to ask a question. What? Who is God? Who, who are you, Christ? What, what do you believe? What are we supposed to believe? Jesus ends up teaching things like freedom is the standard, not the reward. Love is the prerequisite, not what you are. And those who would keep you from having access to freedom are the ones, Jesus is saying, that I'm, I'm standing up against, uh, encouraging to change what they believe so they can change how they act, which is what Jesus teaches. Jesus says that, that uh, the, your behavior is not a prerequisite to being loved by God. So if you have grown up in the world, and I'm guessing that you have because you're here. So if you've grown up in the world, right? You've learned to behave according to what I call the broken ethic of a wounded world. Genesis says all of that. I've been teaching it for a long time. I'm not going to plague you with that right now. Go back and watch previous sermons. They're all there. Genesis says that you and I living, are living according to the broken ethic of a wounded world. What does that teach us? I would be willing 
to guess that you have learned through experience and through the way you've been treated in any capacity, in most of your relationships. I would be willing that your takeaway, I'd be willing to, to bet that your takeaway from what you've learned about love in most of your relationships is that love is conditional. You, and this is what I mean by that, nobody's going to come out to you in any relationship and say, well, I love you conditionally. We don't do that. But our lived experience often tells a dramatically different story. Our lived experience of love in relationships often tells a story that we will be loved so long as fill in the blank. We will be loved so long as we provide. We will be loved so long as we do certain things. We will be loved so long as we don't do certain things. That is a great definition of conditional love. My suspicion is that your lived experience of life has taught you that in some capacity, such that if someone loves you, there's a part of you that wants to know why. I thought about that for years. Because you can't answer the question, why do I love you with, well, because you are this and this and this and you do this, this and this. That's a conditional answer. So how do you answer that question when you're talking about a love that is without condition, right? I teach that the love of Christ is proactive, sacrificial, and unconditional, and I teach that based on my exegesis of the Gospels. I encourage you to go do the same thing. Read it for yourself. I think you're going to get a similar or exactly the same answer. Proactive, sacrificial, and unconditional. We're talking about a love that is unconditional, and somebody wants to know why they are loved. How do you answer that question? I was talking about that, so um, if you listen, if you follow my teachings, one of the things I talk about often is being nudged by the Holy Spirit. This is, uh, this is what it feels like to be nudged by the Holy Spirit. That's often one of the first ways in which the God of heaven and earth teaches you to be in dialogue with God. If you believe that God is omnipotent, that means all-powerful, and cannot communicate with, with the creation God has made, then you don't believe that God is all-powerful. But we've been taught over the years that it's a strange thing to believe that God could speak to you. It's not. It's a strange thing to believe that God couldn't. It's an even stranger thing to believe that God wouldn't want to. Here's why. My conversations with God are often sarcastic a little bit because sarcasm is my love language. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm not going to talk to you sarcastically unless you talk to me first. So if you don't speak my love language, just speak to me sarcastically. I'm going to jump right into the middle. So God and I are often engaged in a little bit of a sarcastic uh, dialogue. And I'm like, okay, God, so how, um, how you know, if, if we're, we're talking about unconditional love, how do you answer that question? And immediately, God brings up this image of my children. Now, I have three girls, right? And God's like, why do you love them? And I'm like, well, because I can't not love them. Do you love them because of what they do? Nope. Do you love them because of what they think? Nope. Do you love them because of how often they... Nope. Do you love them because of what they've... Nope. I bet you experienced that, didn't you? To some degree, you may have grown up in a place where you had to accomplish in order to be loved. So why do you love your kids? 
That was God's question to me. Why do you love your kids? Because I can't not love my kids. So if they came and they asked you why you loved them, what would you tell them? That I have no idea how to answer that question because the idea of not loving them runs counter to what love is. When love takes root in you, that's why love is the prerequisite. Listen to this. That's why that what comes first is not whatever you do to earn love. Behavior is not a prerequisite to love. Listen to this, because so many of us were falsely taught this by the church over the years. Behavior is not a prerequisite to love. Love is the prerequisite to life and therefore to behavior. What does that mean? You don't do what you do so that you will be loved. If that's the case, it isn't love. It's a form of manipulation. You do what you do because of the love that is flowing through you. Said differently, you do the things you do out of the love that you're living in and experiencing. Love is what comes first. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the disciples taught. Love comes first. Well, why do you love me? Love is without condition. God loves you for a reason that is much, much bigger, but really similar in scope to the reason that I love my daughters. Because I can't not. I can't not love my daughters. Because for me to not love my daughters would be for me to not let love work through me in the way that it's taken root. For love to take hold in you is for love to fill you and to work through you. And then you love, and you love extravagantly, and you love first. The woman that you know as Harriet Tubman was born as Araminta. That was her name. In 1822. She was born in Maryland into slavery. From an early age, when she was young, a slave owner threw a, a large metal weight across a field trying to hit another one of the slaves that was there in the head, missed, hit Araminta in the head, and she passed out, didn't wake up for a long time. She would deal with hypersomnia after that. You've probably heard of insomnia, right? The inability to sleep. Hypersomnia is when you, you, you have to sleep way too much. You're always tired, always sleeping, can't do anything about it. She would sleep for these extended periods of time during which she would have visions. One of my favorite stories to tell is the story of St. Patrick and the way that God came to Patrick and, and through the form of visions, which is an old way for God to communicate to people, happens all through the scriptures, tells St. Patrick to go back and bring the love of Christ to the people of Ireland. St. Patrick does that in, guess what? A non-coercive and non-judgmental way, and it becomes the greatest example of non-coerced Christian conversions in the history of our faith. She had these visions, and these visions were about freedom. You know what she had been taught? She had been taught that freedom wasn't available to everybody. Freedom wasn't the standard. Maybe she could earn it. Maybe she could get it. But it wasn't the standard, and it wasn't likely to be a part of her future because she didn't deserve it. That's what she'd been taught. But these visions that she'd get when she was sleeping for long periods of time said something different. That freedom was the standard and it was those who would seek to deny her that freedom that were standing in the way of who God is and was and what God is and was doing. In 1849, she set off in search of her own freedom. Running from people who were chasing her scared for her life, trying to find her way 
through the woods of the northeastern United States. She crosses the border into Pennsylvania and finds her freedom, experiences freedom for the first time. One year later, the Fugitive Slave Act would be passed and turned into law, which meant that even uh, slaves who had found their way to free places could be captured and returned into slavery. So here's one of the things I think that is amazing about the story of the woman who would later take the name Harriet. You will know her as Harriet Tubman. I think that the fact that she found freedom is spectacular. She didn't fight, she found freedom because she chose to set sail on what we talk about so often as the vast and stormy seas of the divine. This is not the way it's supposed to be. She wasn't willing to believe that what she felt in her spirit was wrong, that the nudge of the Holy Spirit was wrong. She knew that the way life was, was not the way that life was supposed to be. And Jesus was there saying, yes, you're right, there is more, it's not supposed to be this way. In spite of the fact, I want you to listen to this. Did you know the last split of the United Methodist Church happened over slavery? There were a whole group of us, and I use that term loosely because we came back together. I wouldn't have been in the group I'm about to talk about that believed that the scriptures well justified it. The scriptures, they said, justified slavery. A whole other group of us that said, yeah, no, that's not the case. That's not what Jesus teaches That's not indicative of our faith. It's not what the scriptural message is. We split. We came back together after enough time had gone by that everybody finally agreed that that was wrong and never should have been the case in the first place. Araminta was a Methodist her whole life. Deeply devout person. She knew the teachings of Wesley who said things like that nudge of the Spirit is what happens when God's Spirit starts to open your seeing eye and your hearing ear. God is teaching you how to hear God's voice, what it feels like for God's Spirit to communicate with your spirit. She took that, internalized it, believed in it, followed it, and when the Holy, the Spirit of God said to her, no, no, you're right, this is not how things are supposed to be. There is more, there is better. Freedom is the standard, not something you're supposed to have to earn. And to add to that, particularly freedom in Christ and the love of Christ, she finds it. And amazingly, once she finds that freedom, she cannot abide that others, and this is the point of Ephesians, would have to live outside of that. So she goes back, by most counts, 13 times, back through the woods, back into the dangerous world of slave owners and those who contracted with them to hunt down slaves who were trying to or had escaped. She first goes back to rescue her family. Some of her family is so scared, and understandably so, that they won't leave. So she takes those who will go and she guides them to slavery with the help of what will later come to be called the Underground Railroad. She guides them to safety in 1850 when the Fugitive Slave Law passes and it makes it unsafe to remain in the U.S. She guides them further north into Canada. Thirteen times she goes back. She was responsible 
for saving approximately 70 people from slavery by continuing to go back to get people and bring them out. Then she goes to fight for the North in the American Civil War. She is the first woman to lead a raid, a combat raid in the Civil War, get get this, that ends up freeing 700 slaves. She was going to retire to a home that she purchased, that she purchased, did you hear that? In Auburn, New York. She got bored. So she founded a retirement community for African American people and became active in the fight for women's suffrage. She died in 1913. Didn't get to see that pass. Paul is saying this. You've learned. You've learned, and he says you've been blessed. You have. You've been given a great gift. Because you've answered the nudge of the Spirit. When the Spirit said to you, I, I don't think this is, when you said, I, I don't think this is how the world is supposed to be. I don't think that love is supposed to be conditional. I don't think that we're supposed to approach relationship with God with a a sense of exclusivity born of a mindset of scarcity that's normal for an ethic that would come from a wounded and broken world. We don't believe there's enough. There's never enough love to go around. There's never enough resources to go around. There's never enough of anything. And so we approach heaven as if we have to be exclusive about who's allowed to be in the presence of God. And all the while, what Christ is teaching is that heaven is not a reward for your good behavior. It is a place prepared for you to to spend eternity with the one who has or will become your best friend. People struggle with this. Because it comes from uh, an ethic of inclusion that's born of a mindset from abundance. God knows there's plenty of love to go around. So people will respond because they've been that's, that runs contrary to our experience our lived experience of the world here's the thing when our lived experience of the world runs contrary to our lived experience of the kingdom it should give us pause to ask some questions about whether or not maybe it's worth setting sail on the vast and stormy seas of the divine to step into the freedom that god said is supposed to be the standard so that in that freedom you can find a love that knows no limits that knows no conditions, a love that seeks to fill you first, and a love that is born of sacrifice. So that in being filled with that love, then guess what? Your behavior will change. God knows that behavior matters. People will often hear uh, the teachings of Christ and say, well, well, why can't? Oh, you're creating a circumstance where people can do whatever they want, right? I remember uh, listening to my niece, she was really young, the day that my grandfather passed away and my sister was, uh, was trying to explain to her, you know, that, that Grandy, we call, my, my dad, they called my dad Grandy, that Grandy's dad had passed away and was in heaven and she was trying to process it and she looks back at my, my sister and she's like, so Grandy's dad isn't here anymore? And my sister's like, no, no, honey, he's, you know, he's in heaven, says the whole thing. And her eyes get huge. And she looks at my sister and she's like, Grandy can do whatever he wants. 
My sister started locking her door after that when she went to bed at night. Some people will be like, oh, no, no, pastor, you're creating a situation where people could just do whatever they want. No, what we're doing is teaching what Jesus taught, which is that behavior matters, but it doesn't matter for the reasons we're trying to tell people that it matters. It is not the prerequisite to love. Behavior is the result of it. We behave in ways that are motivated by the love that we have received, and before we receive God's love and it transforms us, we have no idea what right behavior is. Evidenced by the fact that Paul tries to teach it and even Christians don't like what he has to say. People say to Paul, well, how are we supposed to know what to do? We want one standard, right? Everybody needs to do the same thing. Paul's like, no, that's not how it works. The standard, the one standard, is in the methodology you use, not in the action you take. This is Paul's teaching. Methodology, not action. We want a standard for action. Everybody has to do the same thing. Paul says no. The teachings of Christ say everybody needs to to, uh, use the same reason for what they're doing. What does he say by that? He gives this example in three different ways. Once about eating meat. Once about uh, the proper day of the week that you're supposed to find holy, and then he gives the example again um, with regards to how it is that we're supposed to determine what is and is not okay to do regarding uh, sacrifices that are made to idols. So what does Paul end up saying? The criteria that you use that is the standard is this, according to Paul. If you're doing what you're doing so that you can best honor God, if you believe, meat. If you believe that eating meat is the best way to honor God, go eat that meat. And he said, if you believe that not eating meat is the best way to honor God, don't eat that meat. Whichever way you believe is the best way to honor God, go and do that. People lost their minds. They couldn't handle that. We have to have one standard about meat. Paul said, no, the standard isn't about the meat. The standard is about how you are trying to honor God in the best way that you can. Then he said, also, um, this is old theological language, don't be a jerk. And if you think it's all right to eat meat and you're around somebody who doesn't, don't, don't do it around them just to make a point. And then he follows that up with also, don't let them bully you into not doing what you believe best honors God. Behavior is the result of love. That's the freedom we find in Christ. Freedom to be loved so that that love can transform us, so that we can begin living according to the standards of the ethics of the kingdom of heaven instead of the ethics of the world. This is what Ephesians says. Share that with other people. It's not enough for you to find freedom. I mean, that's great. That's that's the first step. But share that freedom. Share that freedom with other people. As the adopted ones, this is what Ephesians is saying, we have both the authority and the responsibility to go back and adopt others into the family of Christ. Well, how do we do that, Pastor? Because the way that I was taught to do that isn't necessarily syncing up with what I'm learning about what Christ taught and who Christ is. Do one thing to share the love of Christ with one person each day. Non-coercively, non-judgmentally. And sometimes do something extravagant. Do something extravagant that causes somebody to say, why would you do this? So that you can respond by saying, because you're loved. Why do you love me? Because I can't not. Because that's the love I've received. The love I've received is the reason, not the question. 
The love that I've received from Christ is the reason, not the question. It's the reason for everything that comes after, not the prerequisite for what is essentially a conditional love. Do one thing to share the love of Christ with one person, and every now and then do something extravagant. That is the best way you have, the best chance you have of changing the world. It is also the best way to go back and get others and help them to find the freedom you have discovered in Jesus Christ. You will continue to grow. When you choose to behave according to the ethic of the kingdom instead of the ethic of the world, when you choose um, to get to know God and allow the nudge of the Holy Spirit to awaken you to what it means to live together with God in the presence of God, and that love continues to fill you, you will continue to grow. You're going to continue to grow in your relationship with God for the rest of your time here, for the rest of your life here. You don't need to wait to share the good news of God with uh, the good news of God in Jesus Christ with other people. The good news of God in Jesus Christ is that they are loved by God first. That love is where they start. Because there are a whole lot of people who do not believe that they're worthy. Would you pray with me? Today we want to give you thanks, God, for the people who came back. For the people who set sail on the vast and stormy seas of the divine for the people who, in so many cases, risked everything to find the freedom that exists in you. Sometimes we create a culture in which to step out in search of you causes us to be excluded from our own people, from our own culture. And so I want to give you thanks, God, for those who chose to embark on a journey toward discovering you, who listened? Who listened and said, I don't know that this matches up with what I'm discovering that you said when you came to earth in human form. Who felt the, the nudge or the draw of your Holy Spirit. Who said, you know, there has, there has to be more than this. this. Something about this doesn't feel right. And you responded by saying, that's because it isn't. There is more. Let's go and discover that together. I want to give you thanks, God, for the people who were courageous enough to set sail on those vast and stormy seas, to set off in search of that freedom, and in finding it, chose that the rest of us would not be left behind. They chose instead to come back and share with us the love that they had received. And when they did come back, it was love that they shared. It was love that they shared that began to transform us as well. Because that's what love does. And so I pray, God, that as we, along with them on that journey, begin to discover what it means to embrace your love and to embrace your love first, to step into the ethic of the kingdom and out of the ethic of the world, God, to allow your love to transform us from the inside out. God, I pray that even as we discover what that means and how much freedom that brings to life, that you would give us the courage to share your love with a hurting and broken world. Give us the courage also to go back. And let it begin, God, in the simplest of ways. There is not a one of us who sometime today doesn't have the ability to share your love with one person in one way. There's not one of us 
who doesn't have the ability tomorrow to share your love extravagantly with someone who doesn't suspect it and doesn't believe they deserve it. Simply because we can't not do that. Uh, lastly, God, I want to lift up those people who are struggling because they don't think that they're worthy of your love. Those who are struggling because they were taught something that's led to a tremendous amount of bitterness and fear. You were never a God whom we were supposed to be afraid of. That's not what the scriptures meant when they talked about fearing you. And so I pray for those who are afraid of you. I pray that they would have a different experience of you. And if that different experience of you needs to come in the form of love that's shared through me or through us, then give us the courage to do it and the wisdom to find them so that they can experience your love for themselves because it's your love that changes things. So we ask in your holy name. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Be sure to tune in again next week. Thank you.